Have you ever had people ask you questions that they didn't care to know the answer to? That they already had a set agenda, it didn't matter how you answered, they wanted to hear a particular thing. The religious leaders always confronted Jesus from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his life ministry. And they would ask him questions, which he had already answered both verbally and by action. But it didn't matter what the answer was. And they didn't care about the truth of the answer. And they're going to do that this time again. They've already are plotted against him because how dare he raise Lazarus from the dead and they were going to both put away Jesus and Lazarus. And so Jesus has come into Jerusalem a few days before Passover. And he went into the temple. And then later, he went into the temple and cleaned out the money changers and those who were making merchandise of the house of God. And so he is in the temple and he's teaching and he'll be teaching there during this week. When they come up to him and in uh, Matthew chapter 21, starting with verse 23, it says, when he had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? So they asked him two questions. Even though he has been answering this, and even, if you will, by what he did by cleaning the temple, he stated by what authority he was doing these things. But they were hoping to trap him because they had an agenda and the truth did not matter. And alike today. And Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. So he goes, okay, I'm going to answer your question, but first I want you to answer a question of me. And he says, this is the question, verse 25. The baptism of John. From what source? From heaven or from men? Was John doing what John was called to do because God called John to do it? Or was John doing it because that was what men were kind of expecting of him to do? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? which gives you an answer already. They, if they came from God, then they're saying, well, why didn't you believe him? And if we say from heaven, and why do you say to us, then why do you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. So already, either the people are right or they're right, but they're afraid to make a statement. Because if the people were right and John was a prophet, then the religious leaders 
should have been following John, and then John, by preparing the way for Jesus. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. Well, they just reasoned. The answer, so they've lied. The answer is, we're afraid to say. We don't want to make a commitment. Because if we say from heaven, then we need to take action on that statement. And if we say from men, then we're fearful. He said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But Jesus will, in essence, tell them, because if you remember a way back in Jesus' ministry, when the religious leaders were obstructing his ministry and seeking to seize him and at times throw him off a cliff or do various things to harm him, when they accused Jesus of working and the Holy Spirit of working for Satan, and he said, no longer will I speak plainly. I will speak to you in parable. For hearing you might hear and listening you might understand. So Jesus says, I'm going to answer you in parables because you've chosen not to truly seek the truth. And because of your unforgivable sin, I will not make it so that you can. But so he's going to, in essence, continue on the discussion. He doesn't walk away. He says, but what do you think? So he's going to tell them a parable. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and he said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. Now that tends to be a lot of us. We have this tendency to be rebellious, especially when it comes to our parents. Our parents obviously have got to be wrong, so whatever. So whatever they tell us to do, our initial reaction is to say no. But in this situation, Jesus is talking about the father and spiritual, if you will, son. And so he says the first son starts off by saying no, but then does it. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Notice they can, they can answer this one without budging. The first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Now that's a stinging rebuke because here they think they're religious, they're holy, they're righteous, they're on God's side. But Jesus is saying that they're like the second son who said that they would do what God told them to do, but do not. Their, their faith is only word, but not action. But he's going to say, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes, those who you think are so sinful that they can never be redeemed. They're the ones that initially rebelled against God, but having heard and thought better of it, decided 
to do God's work. It is not what you say, but what you do. James kind of talks about this. I will show you not by my words, but by my actions of my faith. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe. Anytime a sinner comes to God, we should do two things. We should rejoice. And two, we should inspect our lives to see if something has separated us from God. That we should be following what he said rather than being content with our religion. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all, they were satisfied with religion. But God has called us to a relationship. And he has called us to do his word, not to be hearers. And throughout the scriptures, you will hear, especially when Jesus speaks, he who has an ear, let him hear, which means move from hearing to action. And so he has condemned them because they did not repent and follow God, but yet those who they looked down upon did. But he doesn't end it there. He continues, he says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and rented it out to a vine growers, and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one, and killed another, and stoned a third. And again he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Wherefore, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Now, I think this parable is pretty clear. And I suspect they're pretty sure that it's pretty clear too. Because it has been the history of God's people to when a prophet comes to tell them to repent, instead of repenting, they stone him or kill him or throw them in prison, or do all sorts of manner of things to mistreat the prophet. And so, Jesus is saying, likewise, you have done the same. And so the owner sends his son, saying they'll respect him. But obviously, as we see by the way the religious leaders treat Jesus, they do not respect him. And as a matter of fact, this parable will come 
plainly evident because they will take Jesus outside the gate to crucify him, to kill him, to hope that they do away with him so that they will keep the inheritance. So, but he asks a question, what should the owner do? Now, let me give you some advice if somebody ever asks you about what should somebody do in judgment. Here's the principle. How you judge, you will be judged. So notice their determination. They said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched inn, and they will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. So their thing is, Let's get rid of those guys. Let's give it to somebody else who will do what they're supposed to do. Ta-da. Exactly. You guys have been told that you are responsible for God's people, that you are to grow produce, that you are to grow fruit. And instead of giving those to God, you have sought to keep them for yourselves. And they said they're wretches. They should be destroyed in somebody else should get to manage, and that is exactly what is going to happen. And Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. He's saying, you made a judgment, and that judgment is exactly what's going to happen. It's going to be taken away from you, and it's going to be given to somebody else. That somebody else is you and me. It's we Gentiles and those who are true Jews, who are true children of Abraham. But if he did not respect those whom... He first gave it to you. If we do not follow his will, then how is it that we expect to maintain it as well? We are to be given to a people who produce fruit for him. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like There is this rock, this stone of offense, as I just read when we started the service. Doesn't make sense to the Jews. They're looking for signs. Doesn't make sense to the Greeks, the Gentiles, because why would God surrender his son for us? So it breaks apart those who stumble over it, but it scatters like dust. It crushes those who it falls on. But notice Jesus, having not answered them directly, has now twice told them what their fate is and what their judgment is. Then he's by implication telling them what authority he has. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. But uh, they, 
They're kind of getting it. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Notice they feared Jesus because of the crowd. And they feared the answer about John because of the crowd. And all too often, people make their decision about who the Lord is based on the crowd and not based upon who he is. But Jesus is not through with parables. He's going to give them one more. And in Matthew 22, starting with verse 1, it says this. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have repaired my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So he's imploring them. He's saying, it's ready. You don't have to wait. One of my problems going to, to a uh, reception after is how long it takes. You've got to wait for the bride and groom to show up. Then they got to announce them, and they got and everybody's you know, and then you got to have the the bride dance and the grooms dance, and then and then somebody makes a toast, and half the time they're really inappropriate. You know, I don't want to hear about their past, you know, and and you know, and finally they get around to the food, which is cold rubber chicken, and then afterward, half the people are gone before they serve the cake. It's just, you know, I'm not a big one on weddings, but weddings last about maybe 20 minutes, unless you've got an extra service and then it can last hours. And so I'm one of those guys, I'm willing to go to the wedding, I just don't want to go to the reception. Just take that. But, but this wedding is a feast. It is a feast. I mean, they've got the fatted animals, so it sounds like they've got prime rib, which not not rubber chicken. And and they've got the oxen, and they got whatever. So... It's ready. Sit down and eat. But they're not interested. But they made no, paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated and killed them. You know, it's bad enough to reject the offer. But they're so irritated, they seize the slaves who are inviting them for a good time. They get a free meal. And yet, the irritation. And they killed them. But the king was enraged. Notice he doesn't take it neutrally. It's not like, oh, well, you know. He's enraged. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their cities on fire. You see, God is not neutral. You see, people tend to think that, that you're either for God, against God, or neutral. Neutral is against God. There's only two choices. It's binary. You're for God, you're against God. There's not a third option. And so he destroys those who humiliated and seized his slaves, and decided 
to treat with contempt the wedding feast. And he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Again, he has hit the religious leaders. Those who thought their righteousness was it, and he said they're not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner gifts. So you see, the king's plan was still implemented. He wanted his dining hall filled for the wedding feast, so that there were still those who were there. But there were those who were invited who may not have been considered worthy in the beginning because those who were invited were both good and evil. And if you will, this parable talks about you and me. For you see, we have been invited to the wedding feast of God because those who were originally invited didn't show up. And so Jesus says, send my apostles, send my servants, send my slaves to tell them about the gospel, about the power of God, and how that you have been invited into a relationship with God and that you are there in the most intimate of Eastern culture relationships to dine with the king. You and I have been invited. But when the king came in and looked over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Now, let me comment. A good friend of mine, son, was married almost a year ago. And usually you know how to dress based on the invitation. Usually the invitation is kind of formal, and so you prepare and say, okay, I'm going to wear a suit and tie or, or, or whatever. And you have now, this particular invitation, they said kind of the theme of the wedding was going to be uh, Western. Wear your boots. Well, I don't have any boots. Probably won't get any boots because the ones I've ever worn were uncomfortable. And so I wasn't quite sure how to dress. I'm thinking, well, does that mean I'm supposed to wear jeans? How, how do you go to a, a wedding and a, and a reception when the theme is Western? On leap year. And so my first reaction was, well, I probably will wear jeans, maybe a coat, whatever. And then both counsel my wife and the good old adage that says it's better to overdress than underdress. Because if you overdress, people will be less critical of you than if you underdress. And since he was my good friend, I whatever. So I wore a suit. Well, most of the people there wore suits, at least my other good friend that we sat with. So I felt comfortable with what the right. But at least I wore the right thing. Okay. This gentleman that came to this feast, did it. So you say, well, what is the wedding dress 
that Jesus is talking about. The scriptures tell us that our actions, our deeds, our righteousness are as filthy rags. So if you show up as you, you're inappropriately dressed. You need to come to the king's wedding feast in his righteousness. We are dressed in the righteousness of Jesus. We are placed in the robe of righteousness that God has given to us. I don't know how many times I've heard people who don't necessarily want to follow Jesus who say, well, you know, when that time comes and I'm before God, I'll tell them that I did more good things than bad things. Well, the first thing is, is that you probably didn't. Let's just be honest. If you, if you know your own heart, you know you haven't done more good things than bad things. Even if you didn't end up doing the bad things, you thought about it. And God says your, your thoughts will speak against you. And so you're probably not going to be able to convince anybody that you're more good than bad. And as a matter of fact, Jesus has already slammed that door because he said there's no one good but God. And since you're not God, you ain't good. Next problem. Notice here, he was speechless. He wasn't able to say, well, you know, it was the last minute. I was out working the field, and I got invited, and I didn't want to miss it, so I showed up. Notice he didn't offer an explanation. He was speechless. And when you come before not just the king, but the king of kings and lord of lords, you ain't going to open your mouth. Your only hope is that when Jesus sitting at the right hand of God said, he's mine, my blood paid for him, come thou into my rest, good and faithful slave. Rest in his righteousness and not my own. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness in the place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, th this is Jesus' statement for he goes to hell. And then he makes a very interesting statement. For many are called, but few are chosen. God lays open the gospel for everyone. He calls everyone to come. He even says, it is not my will that any should perish. Many are called, but few are chosen. And the only way you know that you are chosen is how you're dressed. And how you're dressed is in his righteousness. It is by faith alone in Christ alone. So while this parable has been spoken to the religious leaders, I think it's a parable that we need to pay close attention to. For you see, we were invited not because of our worth, but because of the unworthiness of those originally invited. 
and that we only get to stay at the feast, not because of who we are, but because of His grace, His love, His resting our lives. You see, we don't end up in the kingdom. Because one day we wake up just deciding that we just love God. That we think it would be a good idea to follow God. That we think, you know, what do we got to lose? Let's just follow Jesus. No, it's because of his love. His redemption. His declaration by word and deed of his everlasting love. That we respond in love. It doesn't matter what you've done. You could be good. You could be evil. You're invited. As Jesus said, those who are tax collectors and prostitutes originally told God no, but then thought better of it and did. Let us not go so much into we attend church, we attend church, we attend church, and not always look that we are not only hearing his word, but doing his word. And that we always find ourselves dressed in his righteousness. And that we are that way because his love moved first. Stand with me as we pray.